All right. Let me find my notes. Grab your Bibles or your apps and turn to Mark chapter 3. All right. Here we go. Who is this Jesus? That's the question that Mark is attempting to answer and that we are attempting to receive. Remember, as we started this, we wanted to put ourselves into a posture as if we knew nothing of this Jesus. That's how Mark is writing his gospel, likely from Rome to a Roman audience. So at best, they would have had rumors of this Jesus of Nazareth, the, the Messiah, some, some claiming this man was, was and is the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Jewish people. But that's about it. Could we put ourselves in that posture of receiving Mark's account as if we know nothing? It's an exercise to, to be sure. Mark shows us that Jesus was not who anyone was expecting. And Mark continues to show us these snapshots or vignettes or scenes of Jesus and his work and his ministry. They're painting a picture. We might say it's like he's stitching or knitting together a quilt more than he is giving us a historical documentary. At first glance, though, these scenes, their snapshots may appear to be disconnected and kind of erratic in nature. In chapter 3, we're at a blazing pace, aren't we, into chapter 3, but don't worry, it is the shortest of the four Gospels. In chapter 3, we see at least five different scenes presented and, and, and kind of moved from one to another in this somewhat erratic fashion. Are they woven together? Is there a common thread that we can find. The first three we've looked at at least briefly, the first six verses of chapter three, a man comes with a deformed hand into the temple and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath and then interacts or confronts, responds to the confrontation of the Pharisees about doing good on the Sabbath and what is the Sabbath as a whole anyway. The second scene, verses seven to 12, Jesus is once again ministering to these large crowds. So many are coming to him for healing both physical and spiritual, as he is delivering from oppression. They're coming to him in such number that he says, get a boat ready at the shore of the sea so that I can get in there and so we're not going to be crushed by the weight of the, of the crowd. Pretty amazing to picture that scene in our mind. The third scene of chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, is what we looked at last week, the naming of the, the 12 disciples who he names apostles. These no-names get new names and our commission, our sent ones. Let's look at the final two scenes of chapter 3 today, briefly. Jesus returns home, verses 20 and 21, likely to Capernaum. Again, the crowds are flocking to him, pressing upon him. His family comes. They're getting clearly a report of the work of Jesus or the reputation that Jesus is building for himself. And his family comes to take him away, to, to rescue him, I, I think it's more out of selfish motivation. The shame that he might have been bringing or the shade he was throwing on their family was increasing with his claims and with what the Pharisees were claiming of him. So they're going to come try to quiet him down. And then this, this intervention by the family is interrupted by this scene with the scribes that Mark shows us. This fifth scene is sandwiched in between these, these two bookends of the family coming, trying to quiet down Jesus or take him away. They, they think he's out of his mind. He's, he's crazy. He's delusional. And in between, we'll see that the, the scribes accuse him of actually drawing on the power 
of the demonic forces, upon Satan himself, or even being oppressed by Satan. And that's how, therefore, he has this supernatural power and aura about him. And then, we, so we see this snapshot scene in between the bookends of the family coming to try to rescue him. So all that seems kind of erratic. Like, what is Mark trying to present for us? And I think if there's a common thread, it's this, that Jesus wasn't who anyone was expecting that he would be. Everyone is misunderstanding him from his own family who grew up with him or in his case of his mother raised him from birth. His contemporaries, the other rabbis, the Pharisees are clearly misunderstanding who he is as the promised Messiah. And even his own disciples who have been with him as much as anyone hearing his teaching and witnessing his work continue to struggle with their own misunderstanding and their own belief. And I think this is what Mark is presenting for us. And in so doing, he is drawing us in, his original readers and his original audience, but all of us too. Anyone who wants to explore who Jesus is has their own doubts, misunderstandings, or questions, or uncertainties can come into this story. And I think in that, it is brilliant. The unexpected Jesus who brought the upside-down kingdom. I think it's brilliant because it's upside-down in the approach that we might take naturally. You're trying to make a case that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God, therefore the Savior of the world. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the case you want to make to, to a Roman audience who had one King Caesar? A better case or a better footing would have been and everywhere Jesus went, it was evident that he was clearly the Son of God. He had the, the weight and the power of the Spirit upon him. And when you encountered him, you walked away certain. Well, that would have been the better presentation, wouldn't it? And certainly many did encounter him and walk away certain, but so many walked away with their own misunderstandings and doubts. So here's Mark hiding nothing, giving us transparency transparency into how it was and trying to bring us clarity even amidst the doubts and the accusations by so many. And I think that's refreshing. Is our world not longing for transparency and clarity? Here, see what you think. He's presenting the, the facts of the life of Jesus and inviting everyone who listens to explore and to wrestle to recognize that they're not alone with their own doubts and questions and challenges or preconceived notions of who Jesus is. And I think that's the thread that connects these different scenes or quilt, quilt patches. Let's focus just for a few minutes on the parable and then the accusation of the, of the Pharisees. The first parable that Mark shows us Jesus teaching, and it's it's not a well-known one, and that's interesting because Mark is writing with thematics in mind. He's writing thematically, not chronologically. So his first, the first things he shows us of Jesus, the first teaching, the first parables, we should take note of those and say, well, why? Why did he present those? These, these may not have been the first chronologically, but they're the first presentation that Mark wants to give. And this first parable is not the famous ones that we might think of, the parable of lost things or prodigal sons. There's no 
weeds and wheat or sheep and shepherds. Uh, By the way, some of those are coming here next chapter. But this one is about a strong man, a house, and plunder. I think that's very interesting. If we think about how Mark first presents Jesus back in chapter 1, he presents him as the one with all authority. He taught as an, with an authority that no one had seen before. He took authority over evil spirits. That was the first miracle that Mark presents for us, the deliverance of a man with, who was oppressed by a demon. He had authority over the spiritual realm. He then had authority over Satan himself as he was in the wilderness, battling the temptations for 40 days and triumphing in the power of the Spirit. Authority in who Jesus is over all things is being presented by Mark. So in that case, it does make sense that he chooses a parable to emphasize the authority of Jesus over all things. The parable of the reality of the world that we too find ourselves living in today. A man, a house, a strong man, a house, and plunder. The powerful declaration of the authority of Jesus over all things is the emphasis that Mark wants to make in this chapter. And oftentimes we're distracted by this perpetually confusing, unforgivable sin example that comes up in Jesus' own teaching, the unpardonable sin. More on that in just a moment, because it seems to dominate our curiosity, but take us away from the primary message that Mark is trying to reveal. The authority of Jesus over all things, in all ways. Jesus rebuked the scribes for proposing that he was invoking power from the demonic realm or was himself possessed or oppressed by the demonic. Jesus rebukes them and then will correct their thinking by presenting the worldview. They claim that he is drawing on some some spiritual power from Beelzebul or Beelzebub, depending on the translation, which was likely a regional deity, maybe a Philistine origin, closely related likely to Baal. Now, it's really important to understand as we read through this ancient Greco-Roman Middle Eastern text, the spirituality of the people of that day. Almost everyone was pantheistic. They believed there were many gods or deities, many regional ones in different places, and everyone needed to, each one needed to be worshipped or appeased in some way, and it, and it would change geographically to where you happen to live or to be, all to be respected and honored if not feared. Beelzebul was an oppressive deity, and, and certainly so was Baal if, there was a, if they were either one and the same or related. But that understanding of many deities and many ranks, ultimately, different hierarchies amongst, amongst the gods themselves, it would not have been too far-fetched for them to believe that one god had authority over another, a demigod over a lower demon. So for Jesus to drive out lower demons in the power of a greater deity would not have been out of the range of their thinking. And now for us, that stretches a lot of our experience and our culture and our spirituality. Jesus corrects their thinking, but ultimately affirms what the entire biblical text affirms. That in fact, they were closer to the reality probably than we are with our Western understanding. 
There are many deities, many gods, regional ones. Jesus affirms that. But there's one true God, Yahweh, who rules over all and is the creator of all. And he has authority over all. And Jesus has come to demonstrate that authority over all spiritualities. If we understood the world that way, it would likely change a whole lot of how we live and act and understand and receive our world. It's the biblical worldview, and ultimately it's, it's the meta-narrative of Scripture itself that God, the all-powerful creator, has created many beings, many spiritual forces, spiritual beings as well as humanity. And God is looking for a people to rule with him, to extend his power and authority to who will rule like he does with grace, with mercy, for justice, for wholeness, for healing, in service and in sacrifice. And that's what Jesus has come to demonstrate on earth. The one with all power and all authority gives and serves, lays down his life to empower the powerless, and to reach the marginalized. All those who oppose this benevolent rule, who would desire to take power for themselves, to oppress others, to keep it, all of those are Satan. Satan simply just means adversary. It does read in Scripture and certainly in the New Testament like like there is this chief adversary, the the one that's maybe at the, the top of the rank, the Paul calls him the prince of the ruler of the air. Maybe he is the capital Satan. But he's simply an adversary. And anyone that would oppose the good rule and benevolent rule of God is like a Satan, is against God, is an antichrist, to use another term that's used in the New Testament. Anti, the good rule of God. One that wants to take power and keep it, to control and to manipulate and oppress others. So make no mistake, Jesus clearly reveals there is a master of the house, this house, this world that we live in. And I think he he used that term intentionally. We would use that term intentionally. This master of the house, his rule is not benevolent. He is oppressive and enslaving. Jesus would claim in this parable the very same thing that he claimed in Luke chapter 4 when he read from the text in Isaiah. I have come to set the captives free. I have come to deliver. I have come to rescue. He's like the greater and second Moses who comes to deliver not just a select people, but the whole world to lead all into freedom from all spiritual bondage and oppression. That's a declaration from Isaiah. Here we have a parable that teaches the very same thing in veiled terms. For those that want to hear and understand, they receive For those that have already chosen to harden their hearts and their minds, they resist and they reject. The only way Jesus could deliver and bring that healing is to bind the strong man, to prove authority over him, which he's already done by conquering all his temptations in the wilderness. Satan, the adversary of God, threw everything he could at Jesus to take him away from his call and his mission. And Jesus triumphed over that. He took authority back. He gave no place And no room for the enemy. He has bound the strong man. And now he can plunder his house. 
He can lead out those that have been entrapped and enslaved spiritually. That's what he is doing. That's what he is demonstrating by driving out these lesser demons wherever he goes. By the way, the Apostle Paul says this is still the reality of the world that we live in, speaking to the early church and then speaking about a future that was coming. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. He's speaking of our reality and our future in this spiritual realm, in this house that we live in, where the strong man has been bound in the authority of Jesus, but still has influence through the spiritual realms. By the way, I preached on that not too long ago. It is online if you are interested in more. Let's apply this, this concept, this parable we have to bring to an application. Certainly, the disciples would often go back to Jesus and say, please explain that to us. Please help us live out of that. What does that mean for us today, Lord? What does this mean to live in this spiritual reality where there's, there's many forces at war amongst us? I think we all can experience or have at least understanding of spiritual oppression and spiritual bondage. Whether we have words or terms to describe it, whether we've been taught about it or not, we are deeply innate spiritual beings who would say there is more to life and this world than what we see. There, there's more. Humanity forever has been striving for that more. God has placed eternity into our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. We know there is more beyond what we see and experience, the spiritual realm. And humanity has been striving for those answers forever. Jesus is now giving us clarity. We probably, many of us can probably, and maybe even recently would say, I know what it is to feel trapped to feel stuck, to feel enslaved, to feel oppressed and depressed. Those would be descriptors in, a, in our Western culture of something deeper and spiritual that is taking place. The work of the enemy, this master of the house, is oppression and manipulation, is suppression, entrapment and bondage. And all the therapy and medicines and meditation and disciplines that we can perform may mean nothing without spiritual deliverance. Now hear me, I am all for therapies and counseling and medicines and help and disciplines and practices. I'm all for it. But without addressing the reality that Jesus is presenting of the spiritual realm that we live in and the oppressive work of the enemy, they're only, only temporary type solutions. Jesus has come to set the captives free, to break the bondage to bind the enemy against us. And more incredibly than that, because we would say, but Jesus is no longer here. He has given his authority to those that follow him. We'll see it in Mark chapter 6. Before the disciples, apostles, even fully understand and know who Jesus is, he is giving them his authority over the spiritual realm. No, no, not yours and not because of who you are, but in my name and my authority, 
you become my ambassadors over the spiritual realm. And guess what? They'll go out in doubt because when they come back to him, they say, it worked. It happened. We did what you said and they, and they fled. They didn't even expect it to happen. That's the authority that Jesus gives. We don't have to be some supreme believing spiritual holy people to take the authority of Jesus of Nazareth in humility, I pray. But even with our own doubts, to confront the work of the enemy, and he must flee. Many of us walked through the Living Free course a year ago. This was a much more in-depth exploration of Scripture and this story of the authority and power given to his followers in the name of Jesus. This is a reminder of the reality that we live in, an explanation of so much that we experience and that our world feels enslaved and entrapped in that may not have context or language for May our eyes be open and be opening as were these disciples as we come to see who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now the truth, this truth, which is at the core to his character and purpose and God himself is probably how we can make sense of this other piece that happens, this unforgivable sin, this blasphemous against the spirit sin that cannot be pardoned. We get, we get stuck over there, I think, a little bit because it's like holding on to a paradox. Is there a sin that God can't forgive? It's like asking that ridiculous riddle that we all maybe asked at one point. Could God make a rock so large he can't lift it? This isn't just a philosophical riddle. This seems to have internal significance. But at the heart or at the core of this blasphemy, at least in this context, are these men who are accusing the work of the Spirit, they're assigning that the work of the Spirit is actually the work of the devil, the Satan, the Antichrist. It it, it reveals such a misunderstanding of the work of God that that Jesus says "This, this is unforgivable because you know better. These weren't ignorant men. I wonder, as I maybe for the first time pondering yet again this week, if these men didn't even actually believe that it was the work of the enemy, but did not care, looking for any way to destroy him, any way to bring him down, to to take his followers away from him so that they would not lose their position and their place. Look, it must be demonic. There's no other explanation, even if they knew better. And Jesus says, if your heart is that hard, it's, it's unforgivable. Blaspheme me, fine, but not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at the core of the character of God for healing, deliverance, mercy, wholeness, forgiveness, grace, freedom, peace. If you assign the work of the enemy to the spirit, it's unforgivable. Here again, we we have to read in, but we read in just the deep emotion of Jesus. Now, maybe the best way to hold on to this paradoxical concept is simply to make it practical. If you have any concern that you could possibly have blasphemed the spirit, you have not. Because it represents the softness of heart that says, oh Lord, is that possible within me? That I could so dismiss or diminish or deny the work of the spirit that I could be unforgivable. Any kind of softness there shows you have a heart after God's. 
Remember the promise of God, the scriptures do not contradict each other, though at times we struggle and we wrestle. The apostle John says, if you confess your sin, all sin, you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive all sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Unless you would remain hardened in your heart against the Lord. And I think that's the core of this. The one that truly has blasphemed against the spirit doesn't care does not repent, does not give it a second thought, and therefore is unforgivable. At the end of any kind of paradoxical experience for us that we wrestle with, we ultimately need to come to a place of trust in God's justice and mercy, his desire to rescue and deliver and save all people. And we leave that ultimately in his hands. Will we trust him and will we apply this for us today. Be reminded, too, as it's critical for us to be reminded that we are invited into the family of God. And I think that's the final piece here, that we are adopted in. When Jesus says those famous words, who is my mother and who are my brothers, when his family's trying to get to him, it's often read as if he's just dismissive of them. I think the next moment he went and met with them. I mean, <laughs> the scriptures doesn't, we build an argument out of silence as if he's just saying, no, but later they would all come to believe in him. He did not give up on his family. He's just taking that as an opportunity. I think maybe with a smirk on his face, but who is your mother, your brother? Keep coming. They're here. They're here, Jesus. They really want you. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? All that do the will of God. Okay, take me to them. I mean, I can just totally see that, that flow in Jesus' life. We are invited into the family of God to be like brothers and sisters of Jesus, to walk with him, to lean on him for his authority and his power. How incredible. Let's also be reminded that faith has no grandchildren, only children. And that can go two ways. One, we can't depend on the faith of our, our parents. That doesn't get passed down to us. We certainly can learn and glean and emulate the good. But we can't rest upon their faith. It must become our own. Watching my own kids at seven and nine and wrestling with the Lord on how that happens. How I extend to them the opportunity to grow in their own faith and to enter into it is such a, a, a convicting and powerful exercise. Lord, may they never rest on any of my faith, which isn't enough. Isn't even enough for me. It also goes the other way that no matter who your parents were or weren't or failed to be, and certainly the sins of the previous generation can impact us and influence us. And yet, they do not define us. We can find our adoption and our identity into the family of God with a perfect father. We, like these first disciples, invited in that close to have that identity, to join in him, to walk with him, that should give us incredible hope as the disciples themselves were coming to believe in him more and more. Even today, wherever we are on this journey, we are invited to receive from Jesus his authority, his power over the spiritual realm. And maybe those are the kinds of prayers we need to pray today as we respond. There's a reason that that central prayer in Mark 9 is emphasized for us in Mark it's the whole theme of what he's presenting by the Father who's in desperate, desperate need. 
Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. That becomes a, a, a rallying prayer and call for all who would follow Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Let's pray these things and then respond in song. Father, we thank you that you are the God who has come, who has heard the cries of your people, those throughout history who are hurting, suffering, oppressed, and marginalized, and you have come. It is your promise. It is your will. It is your character. Jesus, we thank you that you have, have come, you in the flesh, to reveal that character of God, to take authority over the spiritual realm, to do so in a way that is totally unexpected, but in humility, in service, and in sacrifice. Lord, we are humbled by the thought that you have entrusted to us this same authority in your name. We are invited into the family to bear your name. We are sent like ambassadors to confront the works of evil and the enemy, those that would oppose your character and your work into this world. Lord, we do not claim anything in ourselves. We claim only the authority that comes from Jesus of Nazareth. And I know many of my friends and brothers and sisters and family who are under the oppression of the enemy, assailed day after day. Lord, where that is, the work, the active work of the enemy and the demonic forces, we pray deliverance. We pray your healing. We pray because you bound the strong man. You bind the work of the enemy and they must flee. Rescue, deliver, heal in a powerful way unto your glory and for the joy of your children. Lord, we pray, we certainly can pray into our world, into our communities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and our family. I pray we would, we would engage the work of the enemy. We would stand firm in the armor of God, as Paul calls us to. And we would walk as sent ones, as your ambassadors into the places of darkness for light and for hope especially in a dark season like now. Humble us, make us people of confession and repentance. Bring your grace and forgiveness again today, Lord, and send us into your kingdom-expanding work, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.